it's the 87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast is all about book number 24, Jigsaw. To review the book, I'm joined by the other two bits of the three-piece puzzle that is Hark, Mr. Stephen, do the corners first, Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan, another bit of sky, brown. Hello there. My name is Paul Abbott, and I'm the gremlin that lives in charity shops and eats one bit of every jigsaw that they have on sale. (laughs) Remember, you can find us everywhere by searching for Hark87 Podcast, so please do get in touch and review or rate the show. But now we're entering a new decade. It's 1970. (sighs) So let's get stuck into the usual contextual chatter. Ooh. So here we go. Yeah, new decade. What will turn up in 1970, 1971, and so on? Who knows? <laughs> well, we'll we'll all learn together, won't we? We will. we will. So for listeners new to the show who'd start at this one, I don't think anyone would. We do like to talk about... If you the hate thing. the 60s and the 50s, yeah. you might. Skip all that stuff. <laughs> you are waiting for Jigsaw. If you refuse to get involved, this might be the first one. It could be. Yeah. Could be. Well, we like to look at the things going on in the charts and in politics and infrastructure. And I like to frame <laughs> all it... All the juicy... <laughs> <laughs> all the best bits. And I do like to frame it in the form of a very badly planned quiz where I then have to edit out loads of pauses afterwards. <laughs> because we don't so what I'm going to do, though, I'm going to give you a choice this time, fellas. Well, uh, a or B kind of Well, kind of do you want to do the top albums in the UK... For the music thing, or do you want to do the top singles in America? Albums in the UK. That would be my vote. Okay. Yeah, okay, go on then. We'll, we'll have well, a go at that. We might do, know the answer. We might do the singles in the uh, bonus episode. Both. Yeah, I'd like to, if we can dip into that too, because we'll, I'm kind of we'll curious. We'll do that in now. the bonus episode. Splendid. Well, let's do that. I'm not that bothered. Well, it's al- albums now, because we've, yeah. been, we've been trailing the notion of doing it, well, albums. Well, I've, yeah. I've been a. An uh, album advocate. I, I have, yeah. So, what do you think? I've got the top 10. Albums of 1970. I'm going to say Bridge Over Triple Water. He's right, straight there, number yes. one with a, with a bullet. Yeah. I knew I went to the wrong one. <laughs> with Led Zeppelin 2. Led Zeppelin 2 is at yeah. number two. Get in there. This is the most this, efficient we? one we've ever done. Um, number three. Oh, imagine we get number three. Uh, I bet you will. You bet we won't. Yeah, that wasn't a clue. What would the Who be doing? In uh, no. Oh, live at Leeds? No. No. Oh. You fool. Your run has broken. Yeah. It did release it, but I don't think it would have been one of the top albums. But yeah. yeah um, um, I'll give you a little clue here. There's at least two original film soundtracks. Oh, there always is, oh, isn't there? 1970. Uh... Were there big musicals in 1970? Are they musicals? There's one musical and one film soundtrack. Mm. They're quite different. You wouldn't get the two confused <laughs> if you if you'd gone into the cinema to watch one, you'd you'd and, and accidentally gone in the other. That'd be interesting. It, number three was the soundtrack to Easy Rider. Oh, oh of course. course. There you go. But number four was the soundtrack to Paint Your Wagon. Oh. Ah, right. They're quite different films. Fairly different, one might say, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's six left you haven't guessed. And they're very gettable, are There's they? at least two that are very gettable and will not appear again. And we'll... uh, so, Beatles? Yeah. Yes. Let it so... be. Let it be. And there uh, can only be one more, really. 
at the time. Abbey Road? Abbey Road, Abbey Road yeah. Was... So basically Abbey Road and Let It Be are both in the top ten Splendid. of the albums of 1970. And I will uh, fill in the gaps for sort you. Stone's album? Let, no. Let It Bleed? No, no. No, they're not there. Deep Purple. Only. I was going to say uh, Deep Purple. In rock. Deep Purple in Rock. I was going to say, I was, yeah, and my mind wandered. Yeah. <laughs> but did it wander as far as Motown Chartbusters Volume 3? No. Oh, it's a good one, that, I think. Is that the one with the silver These, cover? The sort of radiating silver yeah, bands I thing? I think so. It might be, and I or think I probably got my mum's copy of that. Or it might be the one with the, 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 the sort of foil kind of blue, silver and red. It's, it's a good one anyway. Yeah. In Court of the Crimson King was at number one <laughs> for 30 weeks. Well, <laughs> the, the other one was... Um, Andy Williams' Greatest Hits, and McCartney by Paul McCartney. Ah. So there you go, the dissolution of the Beatles fully happened by, ah. well, in this year anyway. Let's move on from that, let's do a bit of film and TV. What was going on? Let's just get it out of the way, Steve-O. There's oh. two carry-on two? films. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone, up. these carry-on oh, things are just... Of these, though. Um, and we've, we've had um, camping now as well, we so... Have, yeah. I don't know. Have we had at your convenience yet, or has... I think we might have been past that. Uh, we might have sure. already gone past that. See, I have seen very few carry-on <laughs> films, as my ability to answer these questions <laughs> clearly shows. Well, I'll put Carry-on. Oh, here we go. <clears throat> no. Carry-on, no. <laughs> carry-on, Doctor No. Carry-on, Spying. There's not there, no. That was an earlier one. Car- carry-on, Up the Kyber. No, but it was up something. Up your trousers. (laughs) Carry on up your trousers. (laughs) Carry on up your ladder. Carry on up. (laughs) Up the junction. Up the junction. That's almost it. (laughs) Carry on up the duff. No, (laughs) well, I liked what you were doing there with the sort of gritty realism kitchen sink. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Carry on up the jungle. Ken Ken Loach directed Carry (laughs) On film. Carry on up the where the jungle. Oh, yeah. I've not heard of that one. It's can I, it's a Frankie Howard one, I think. I don't remember it being very good. <laughs> really? <laughs> and carry on loving, which I think is the dating Def- dating agency one. Definitely which is a bit better. Not, definitely not heard uh, of that th- one. Those two have both completely passed me by. Yeah. Well, I think you'll manage to live happy lives. Probably. Yeah. All right. Anything else? So, should we have some horror films? Go on, then. Let's do the hammer. Uh, ooh, what would have been 1970? Dracula has risen from the... Gr- uh, uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula. He corrected himself ooh. and he did it right. Taste yeah. the Blood of Dracula. And yeah. another Dracula. Uh, Dracula, uh, Scars of Dracula. Scars of Dracula. Oh. There's some successes today. This is yeah. quite good. Yeah, all right. That's a good one as well, actually. And then you have the va- the Vampire Lovers. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's a, yeah, that's a, as that's many a teenage boy has watched. That's a, an excellent film. And When Diana Dawes Ruled the Earth. That's also very good. Of course, other films that were out in that year was The Beast in the Cellar, oh, which was yeah. a film we bought a version of in the old flea market in oh, Liverpool. Gosh, I forgot the name yeah. of the bloody place. Um, yeah, and, uh, we ended up splicing, uh, using it because we could never get it to play because it wasn't the right. Because we bought an eight millimeter film randomly off the shelf in, yes. a, in a flea market, and it didn't work, did it? On my projector that uh, uh, electrocuted you if you touched the metal casing. <laughs> well, we still used it. You just have to be careful. <laughs> it was fun hanging out with us at university, wasn't it? Was yeah. yeah. Dangerous electrical equipment and horror films. Mm-hmm. 
there was also Let It Be came out in terms of Beatles things. Mm-hmm. One of my favourite 60s curiosities, the Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. Oh, yeah. The Peter Cook film, where his entire lack of acting ability plays to his favour in that. <laughs> and the top UK film of 1970 was Ryan's Daughter, oh, which yeah. I've never seen. No, nor I. That's, uh, what's its name, isn't it? David Lean. Something like that. In America, Love Story was the top film. Ugh. And there was also the film Airport, so one of the disaster ones, oh, I think, yeah. isn't it? The film of MASH. And the best picture was Patton, for which George C. Scott declined an Oscar. He did, yeah. And on TV in America, see, we all have never have seen this, but we all know this from Futurama and working backwards. All My Children starts on TV. <laughs> all My Circuits. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. My ironing board that looks like Calculon is currently stashed <laughs> down the side of the fridge. See, And for our Australian friends, well... Neighbours didn't start in no. 1970. No, but Skippy the Bush Kangaroo oh. ended. Oh, sad days. Yeah, but it just started going around the world then. So mm. it became the global phenomenon of animal rescuing people. <laughs> what if Gentle Ben started? I don't know. I think it might be in the 70s, might yeah, it? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely. We'll keep an eye out for that, because I'm sure everyone's it. wondering yeah. when Gentle Ben has started. Because that had like a, a kind of a hovercraft in it. it. Like the Florida one? Everglades, yes. is it? What they call yeah, it? absolutely. There Great you go. Stuff. I bet you weren't expecting Gentle Ben, dear listeners. <laughs> gentle listener, in fact. Imagine a bear operating a hovercraft. <laughs> well, I am imagining it now. Yeah. I'm not going to be imagining it for the rest of the podcast, aren't I? <laughs> No wonder you don't see them anymore. <laughs> yeah. you know, so many animals have gone extinct because of their failure to operate hovercraft effectively. They probably have. <laughs> don't put your paw in the fan. Oh, no. And this is what, I tell you what, this is what people are waiting for, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Is this an infrastructure Infrastructure. Oh. Got, I've got you see one, it coming. You can see one. it coming a mile away. I well, was, I was, perhaps four miles. I want to know. Oh, oh, is that four clue? miles away? Four miles distance. You'll never get it from it's, here. No. Oh right. No, it's, it's such a specific thing. We won't get it. We'll read it out. Well, I want to know whether it's railroad or road. Right, and what about it? S- stretch a motorway. Stretch a motorway. Stretch a motorway. A four-mile stretch of motorway. <laughs> I couldn't find any really big infrastructure projects. So, what, your question is... The question is, can you name the four-mile stretch of motorway that was opened it, in it, 1970? Is it important? No, not at all. Oh, not right. Not. No, I can't. It was the A194M. Oh, <laughs> four miles south of Gateshead. I was thinking it was going to be some, like, you know, the Tay Crossing or something like that. <laughs> no. Uh, if I... The problem is I start looking into infrastructure stuff. Yeah. I, I end up spending a lot of time doing that and not actually researching about the book itself. Well, For my US politics little block I've got on here, I've just written the word Nixon mm. and <laughs> nothing else. That, that was mainly what was going on. But what it is, 1970 is the start of the golden age of plane hijacking. Ooh. That's what comes up. If you research 1970 in transport and stuff like that, aviation, I'll do you a very quick rundown of some of the hijackings in 1970... I'd have to put that sort of music behind it. Maybe I will do that now. January the 1st, plane hijacked in Uruguay, taken to Cuba. January 7th, hijacking Spain to Albania. 8th of January, Paris to Syria and Beirut. Panama to Cuba. The Dominican Republic to Cuba. Chile to 
an unknown destination, probably Cuba, Berlin to Hanover, Bogota to Cuba, Cleveland, Ohio to Cuba, Chile to Cuba, Newark, guy didn't have any plan, Argentina to Cuba, Tokyo to Pyongyang, and that's only up to the end of March in 1970. Right. And it just goes on and on. So by September the 11th of 1970, Nixon started going, we probably better start putting people <laughs> on planes to try and deal with this. Tighten it up. I bet security was like virtually non-existent. Yeah, so like it was like re- yeah, really, really easy. Well, as one of these stories, the, the, the Newark one, this guy apparently... He panicked whilst he was on the plane because he had no means of paying for his flight. It's like, but you're on the plane. <laughs> How are you on the plane if you haven't bought the ticket already? Very. What, and then decided and to so hijack decided, it? Yeah, so just basically said, just fly as far as you can. It's like, <clears throat> what? So it's ludicrous, the amount of hijackings going mm, on in, in wow. 1970. But I'll give you a little bit of info about Evan Hunter, the subject of the hmm. podcast. Nothing was released other than Jigsaw in 1970, but I did find out that he wrote a book called A Horse's Head in 1967 under the name Evan Hunter, which is about a, a, a gambler, a horse player who's kidnapped and there's a sort of all sorts of chases and madcap stuff and money, which according to the information I found in the Evan Hunter archives said it was adapted by a, as a screenplay, not by Evan Hunter himself, but by Robert Culp. The actor who played loads of villains in Columbo. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, for some reason, Robert Culp wrote a screenplay of an Evan Hunter book. Great. And there's a an edition in soft cover where it says, soon to be a major motion picture. It never was. Oh. But there was a version made a couple of years later in French as The Cry of the Cormoran. Not The Cormorant. Mm. The Cormoran. Which, yeah, French production. But then in 2010, on Ed McBain's website, it says, soon to be a major motion picture again. Hmm. And he sold it to someone called Lionel M. Lober of Prodigal Productions, who, again, if you look now, you can barely find any information about. Hmm. So they are some strange information because the Robert Culp Columbo link mm-hmm. is relevant to this book that Indeed. we're about to do. So let's talk about Jigsaw. I'll give you some jigsaw facts. Copyright date, 27th of March, 1970. Hardback release was Doubleday in America, UK, Hamish Hamilton still. US paperback was Signet and the UK paperback was Pan, as most of the ones we're looking at for a while are. It's 24th in the series. And it was published, like the last book we looked at, Shotgun, it did appear in shortened form in Star Weekly in Toronto. Sadly, this time, I haven't got the cover of it. I couldn't find a copy of the cover of it, so we don't know if it's as bizarre as the <laughs> the newspaper version of Shotgun from the last episode. Is that why they say not for sale in Canada? Because it might have impinged on no, the I rights. No, I think that's for... most books published oh. in the UK you can't sell in Canada. I do not know why. Hmm. It was adapted a couple of times, this. Once as one of those Czech films that we've talked about before. Oh, right. really slow... The terrible music. Yeah. All the way through. Yeah. (laughs) Well, perhaps you'd rush out to watch season 12, episode 3 of Columbo, known (laughs) as Columbo Undercover. It's not a well thought of Columbo episode. It veers so far from the Columbo formula Mm. because Columbo goes undercover. (laughs) Columbo doesn't go undercover. Right. So it does feature Detective Sergeant sergeant in this in the Columbo, Arthur Brown, who's mm. the main character in the book. 
he sort of is Columbo's working with Columbo, who's a lieutenant, isn't he, in the TV series. But Columbo goes undercover, not Arthur Brown. Hmm. But it's got Ed Begley Jr. in it as Irving Crutch. He's always good, Ed Begley Jr. And the guy that played Arthur Brown was a guy called Harrison Page, who I don't know anything about, but he played a guy called Captain Trunk in a series called Sledgehammer. Oh, that sounds good. I said it like that because it does have an exclamation mark in it. It didn't need one, really, wouldn't it? Which I think, from the short description I read, was about a cop who just basically uses the most violent means necessary to deal with crime. Better than if it had a question mark. Sledgehammer? (laughs) (laughs) Who left this sledgehammer here? Every week it's just trying to figure out who left a sledgehammer in the room. I'd still watch. But he played the neighbour in the US version of Love Thy Neighbour, which is a British sitcom from the 1970s Mm. with not great racial, I was going to say undertones, but it's pretty much overtones, I think. Anyway. Of its time. Of its time. Very much. Perhaps like some of the stuff in the book. Indeed. Well, this is true. Other people that were in the Columbo episode, Edward Hibbert played Bramley Khan, and you would know him for, perhaps from Frasier. He played one of the, the DJs at the radio station, the slightly camp one, called Gill, I think. Mm. So people might know him. Geraldine Ferguson was played by Shira Denise, who was Peter Falk's wife. And Tyne Daly was in it as well, oh. as one of the other characters. And there was a credit in it that says, Evan Hunter, the character of Arthur Brown is a continuous character in the 87th Precinct series, created by and is used here with the express permission of the author. And we're not going to go into that Columbo thing anymore because we haven't watched it yet. Perhaps we'll do a special episode at some point. But there are a number of very good Columbo podcasts out there who've looked at it and (laughs) criticised it. We might love it though, might we? Well, let's... Have you ever seen it? I've seen the Columbo episode. Yeah. I seem to remember just being excited that Arthur mm. Brown was in it. Well, of course. And perhaps that was it. forgave other stuff. It certainly doesn't end like the book ends, let's put it okay, that way. Okay, okay. <clears throat> let's get stuck in. Let's. Oh, well, the book is dedicated on your first page to Helen and Jean Federico, Ooh. who are both graphic designers slash advertising artists. So I wondered, because there is a lot of stuff set in an art gallery in this... Hmm. I wonder if some of the descriptions of art and the descriptions of the characters that you might see in an art gallery are based on, presumably, Ed McBain's friends, people like Helen and Jean Federico, who certainly had been exhibited in places like MoMA and things like that. That would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? It'd tie everything up nicely. I mean, I assume he didn't use them as inspiration for the characters (laughs) in the art gallery, because they're not very nice. It wouldn't be tremendously flattering, (laughs) would it, now? Perhaps he didn't like them. (laughs) Right, shall we do our usual bit of what do we think, generally speaking, about this before we get into the detail? What do we think? Well, it's very interesting. It has centre stage the first different character for a long, long time, I would say, Mm. since the initial run of books, probably for, yeah, good ten years almost, I would say. You've got a, a brand new central character in the form of Arthur Brown. Yeah, and uh, a very good central character he is as well. He certainly is. It's uh, nice to see someone else stepping up to the plate mm-hmm. as well. He's. I think Arthur Brown is one of the solid, dependable characters in yeah. the Corella mould. Absolutely. Really, but he obviously comes with a whole load of particular social and slightly different background to Corella and a lot of the other cops. So he's a really interesting character to put into the into the mix. Yeah. Well, I suppose you, you've always got a bit of like racial 
angle with Corella being Italian, but I suppose yeah. if you enter the 70s, that's perhaps less topical at that time, I, w- I would have thought. Less so than in the 50s, definitely. I guess so, although you still, you still get um, people getting his name wrong because they it, can't tell the difference between from one Italian name to the next and things right. like that, which I'm sure is probably a lot of it's drawn from... from uh, Evan's own experience as well with uh, with his uh, Italian family and everything too. Yeah, so a name like Lombino, mm. that's easy to mispronounce but, or mishear and stuff like that as but well. But he's a similar character in that he's got that trait as well. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, he's quite a bit similar to Crella in many ways. Obviously. I think you are right, though, about the, the difference between, say, the 70s and the 50s in the, mm. the situation for being black and in New York in 1970 and in the 1970s was perhaps by that point, more issues than it was for an Italian-American. I don't know. I mean, we're not sociologists and we're not specialists in this, but certainly this is what we'd be led to believe probably from what we've read and watched over the years and things like that. How many detective first or second grades you'd have had in the 50s who were black? Probably non-existent, I would think. Well, there's quite... It's Um, funny, there there has been quite a few over the the years in the NYPD, uh, but never sort of... There was always a sort of story attached, mm. and there was a lot of controversy over, or controversy, pick your pronunciation, <laughs> over different uh, people from different racial backgrounds being promoted and put into different mm. positions, and perhaps not being always put in the place where it's mainly black people or mainly Italian people, things like that. Mm. So, yeah, there, there wouldn't have been masses in the, certainly in the leadership, as it were. No, yeah. It's a different type of 87th Precinct story as well, isn't it? Because it's a quest. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's very linear, the story. It is. Definitely. And it's, it's, it uses the sort of reproductions of bits of uh, the sort of props, as it were, to kind of directly involve the, the reader in the quest as well. So you can kind of, you can quest along, really, which is, 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 is pretty fun and involving, I think. We didn't have any prior knowledge of this, the crime, did we? No. It occurred to me reading it, it was like, well, I've forgotten about this, as I no. may well have done, but um, so the sum- I, didn't, I didn't think so. Yeah, the um, summary of the story is basically that there's a scene of a double murder, probably two guys who've killed each other, right. it seems, yeah. but after that happens, a chap turns up in the 87th Precinct who is an insurance investigator, and he says that the guy, one of the guys, or both of the guys that have been killed, were involved with a bank robbery or had information pertaining to a bank robbery six years before and if he could find all these little bits of information which take the form of a photograph that's been chopped up then they can locate where the missing loot is and he and this character Irving Crutch can get the money back for his insurance agency and that's how the story opens I'm a little bit dubious about the fact that they just went into the office, checked with the lieutenant, and he was like, yeah, work with him, it's fine. This <laughs> random who's turned up. But it's still in their open file, isn't it? So they are. They do seem quite keen to hmm. yeah, solve to it, out. really. Perhaps there's just not a lot going on. And they, <laughs> um, they think, not, yeah, let's... Not sure if police departments would work with insurance investigators or not. I'm guessing... Like, well, they probably the, did to probably some extent. some precedent for that. But this guy, wa- <laughs> this guy walks into the squad room, bold as brass, and they, he's like film star, sort of <laughs> handsome, isn't he? 
and talks stop... about himself in the third person, doesn't he? <laughs> this is amazing. I've never met anyone who talks about themselves in the third person. The Rock used to, didn't he? He, he certainly did. Well, yeah. all right. So it's can you smell of what the Rock is cooking? He used to say, <laughs> yeah. and he wasn't even cooking anything. No, wow. he was just lying. And he's got a great career. This fictional Irving Crutch, he's never been in a single major motion picture. That's true, although he does describe things like he's in a, a, a motion picture with yeah, fade, fade in. in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's clearly a bit of a, a, bit of a character, isn't he, he's old Irving? Definitely uh, yeah. imagining himself as the hero in, in, in his own story. There's a certain irony to that as we... Fine yeah. as we go along, but he's got a he's got a bit of paper with uh, half of some names on it, hasn't he? Yeah, and then a bit of the photo, and the they found another bit of the photo at the crime scene. So they have two bits of photo, and they don't really show anything whatsoever. They just like a bit of a blur. So and then they think the names on the paper relate to people who've got the. Other bits of the photo. Yeah, they, they don't necessarily know how many of them there are, and because the two dead people have their names on the list and they're both dead, so yeah. therefore it seems logical they start hunting down the rest of these people. Indeed. And the first person they find, Arthur Brown, teams up with, doesn't he? He goes, uh, he goes deep undercover. Yeah. Starts oh, yeah. living in some dodgy. There's a lot of grotty hotels and yeah, apartments in this. Certainly are. And then starts investigating, but pretending not to be a policeman, even though everyone thinks he's a policeman. So he <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, yeah, they give off the stench of fuzz a mile away. Any of them, really, don't they? All of the cops of the 8-7. I think probably even Andy Parker, who's not in this book at all, but even he, I think people know he's fuzz. Yeah. See, using that term now because of doing fuzz the other time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's hip now. Well, yeah, the, this character, he joins up with Albert Weinberg, as he called. That's the fella. He, he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a character. He's quite a ne'er-do-well, isn't he? Um, he has a bit of a, uh, a funny relationship, doesn't he, with old Arthur, because he teams up with him, then he tries to kill him, <laughs> yeah. and then he becomes his best mate, and then he he's quite horrible uh, to him, and then they become best buddies. And, and then, then he winds up dead. Yeah. So it's a bit of a roller coaster of a. Um, it's quite a big body count in this book. Yeah. Which is always nice, isn't it, for a, a story? Well, absolutely. But I think Arthur Brown quite enjoys working undercover, doesn't he? And with old Albert. Yeah. Knocking back the whiskey with old Al, yeah. Although it's because he's the main character in, in the book, it's his turn to get knocked unconscious, not Steve Carella's for yes. once. And there's a brilliant little section where he's in. He doesn't want to go to the hospital, but Corella insists. <laughs> gets in there, and the nurse tries to keep him in hospital by taking away his trousers, <laughs> which does happen in the Columbo episode. Although I don't think Columbo deals with the nurse in quite the same way Arthur Brown does, with such lascivious uh, mm. scares. Yes, mm. but. It's a good system, keeping someone somewhere by yep. merely removing their trousers and <laughs> not giving them back. I do like that. I mean, there's a lot about... Well, not a lot, but there's some significant bits of information about Arthur Brown's family background as well, which is quite interesting. So not only does he get centre stage in the story, but we also get to learn a bit more about the conditions in which he grew up, which is yep. why he's familiar with the slums and things like that. And we find out that, for instance, his sister died when she was very young from drugs and a gang. So, although he doesn't say it, it's a bit like 
that's probably what made him want to be a cop. Mm. It's just quite nice. It's that little clever McBain drop of information that just fits neatly into the jigsaw of the, of the characters. Uh-huh. Yeah, because Arthur Brown does spend a lot of the time musing on how people relate to him as a, as a black man. In fact, doesn't even like the term black. Mm. And African-American is probably a better term. But he's sort of talking about how it's got quite hip for white people to start using terminology that we certainly wouldn't use yeah. or certainly shouldn't use now. But of course, we know it does still go on and it's horrible. But uh, it's really interesting social commentary. Yeah. It does get quite hard to read, I reckon. Yes, there's, there's some bits that to a modern reader, uh, uh, yeah, and pretty when tough he, to take. When he introduces deliberately racist characters like the art gallery owner who comes along, Geraldine Ferguson, because she's one of the names on the list, and her attitude towards him is just weird. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, why would you say this stuff to any other human being, especially someone you didn't know? You just go in with your opening gambit of, of using racial epithets to refer to this person. Mm. But she still does that when she's trying to get him into bed as well, which is uh, yeah. quite curious. So the, this is, the list leads them to this art gallery, which, and so one of the key characters is this Jerry Ferguson, Geraldine Ferguson, and... They reckon she's got a piece of the picture, but she won't give it up. But her associate, Bramley Khan... Yeah, some quite bad uh, with him as well, isn't there? That is yeah. uh, potential sexuality. Yeah, uh, so, well, we, we, we know he's uh, gay because he turns up, they find him in a gay club at some point when they want to question him. But it's, it's one of those strange things. It's, it's a bit of talk about how liberal the city is, mm-hmm. and, and but you can't quite tell what attitude McBain's trying to express here. Mm. I think it's probably not unusual for the time. That doesn't mean it's easy to read or you have to forgive it by any means. No, indeed. But, yeah, so there's, there's a few challenging things to deal with in this yes. book. Really. Yeah, there's certain paragraphs you start and you're like, mm, right, okay. That's re- <laughs> Which is odd, because I think the funny thing with this book is, I'm sure we'll get to this the whole and the parts are two very different things. Mm. There's certain bits of this book I think are absolutely wonderful to oh, read. Yeah. There are other bits that are really quite hard to read. There's a bit, and it is on page... Oh, we'll have the right... We will. Oh, gosh, I'm giving it away. We've all got the same edition. <laughs> page 121, they're talking about taking the ferry, the Beth Town Ferry, oh, which yeah. in the real world would be the Staten Island Ferry. Indeed. And it's just it's a couple of paragraphs of them just musing about how beautiful the ferry is how yeah. great it is that you can do this journey and i mean i did the staten island ferry last year and it is amazing to look back mm. and see this you know the the city spread out in front of you it's free now it's cheaper than it was in this amazing <laughs> it was five cents in 1970 so it's <laughs> free now it's gone down but it's a really really evocative thing mm. about something that's part of the life of the city the lifeblood of of that type of place and it's just it's just nice. Very nice. I like it. Yeah, it's a lovely bit of writing. Stands out. So the quest continues. You know, he keeps looking for all these bits and pieces. And people keep getting killed. They do. It's Which good. is a laugh. <laughs> Not for those being killed, obviously, but... Uh... Yeah. But it, it makes them think it's slightly more than just a quest, or just a little treasure hunt. Doesn't so? The cops are a bit like, mm, yeah... Mm. Hang on, we've got all these corpses, we've got all these names. 
We've got all these bits and pieces of paper that don't quite fit together. Indeed. Let's share the information with uh, Irving Crutch, see if he's come up with anything, shall we? It's funny how when they share the information with Irving Crutch, someone ends up dead every time. Odd that, isn't it? Mm. What could that well, be about? alibied up to the hilt, though, isn't he? Susie Endicott. <laughs> I think there's an interesting thing. He, this, so this guy's alibi is entirely based on the fact that he's just in bed with this girl. And it's almost like he's trying to embarrass them into not looking any mm. further. And she confirms it. And he's sort of right. He's sort of, his alibi is sort of true. Mm. And I like the fact they sort of t- t- turn the tables on him a little bit. At some point when they try to work out where the investigator Irving crutches, they wake him up at some stupid time in the morning and make him write out a timetable of where he is. <laughs> a bit like you might have to do for an insurance claim or a police report or something yeah. like that. He has to write those stupid detailed Slightly, and he writes it slightly sarcastically. Yeah, we had you, this you, wine at this place and stuff. Yeah, you can definitely feel his annoyance coming through uh, in in the the text of the report. Yeah. So, what do you reckon about the MacGuffin? The idea of the the photo being chopped up as a jigsaw and just given. So, four people did the bank job. They've each given two parts to other people. Mm-hmm. So there's eight bits to find. I mean. Six years later, would people not have just lost them? Or would they really... Yeah, did they because, really believe it was... Yeah, because everybody who seems to be given it doesn't... Did, 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 I don't think they ever say that they knew what it was for. They just kind of mm. guess, but... Well, sp- sp- so what? Because <laughs> right, the only way that they would need it, they would need that photo is if, as happened, everyone died so and if everyone's dead then how on earth are all the parts going to get liberated together given nobody knows who's got them all so it does seem yeah the, well the basic system that kind these, of <laughs> flawed idea yeah, really right from the off the basic system that the bank robbers have, have tried to implement to, to to hide this money perhaps until something cools off is flawed because <laughs> it spreads the risk across loads of people they all die. The people on the list start dying. So who's actually going to be the person? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you all, the photographs and who's got the money makes sense if everyone's still alive. And if everyone's still alive... They don't need they don't them need because it. they already know where. Yeah. And also, However, when you see the photo at the end, I would propose that that photo is totally useless because <laughs> it's so... Vague that I, I think it would it would take you forever to work out where I, it is. Well, I think that there's a little bit of explanation as to how they find it. I don't know how much we two believe rocks, it. Two rocks slightly off the in the river. So the photo basically reveals where the supposed takings from this bank job are not buried but hidden, and it's in in the river. They know they figure out that much eventually, and it says the missing part, the last part that they get is marked with a cross, and it's got enough on it to identify... Mm, I suppose there's a couple of rocks there. Yeah, they get a helicopter but, out and yeah. fly up the river road to, to find it. It's... Yeah. yeah. Oh. I, I know the whole thing with the, the photo is, is kind of daft and doesn't make any sense, but I do really like it. It's fun, isn't it? Well, it is fun, yeah. I, I get it. <laughs> but it's one of those weird things. The jigsaw, the, the actual shapes that are cut out, mm. Steve Carella, our hero in almost every book... <laughs> you know save this one is you know he's he's sort of he's kind he's he's dedicated he's powerful he's 
he's a good detective. He can't put four pieces of a it jigsaw is, together yeah. in 20 minutes. Incredibly gifted cop, bloody awful at jigsaws. Hmm. Yeah. And in Teddy Carella's one very brief appearance, she's like, jigsaw. <laughs> so there. Yeah, have we given the game away about who the uh, uh, reach point on who the the uh, perpetrator was? Or... We haven't given it away, we but might I think have we hinted. more or less. <laughs> <laughs> we might have strongly hinted. Any detectives listening to this may have made some, uh, you know, some judgments about that. But spoiler policy: every time we say it, there is no spoiler policy. Yeah. So yeah, it was good old Irving all along, wasn't it? Smarmy Irving Crutch. Yeah. Turns out he's not doing it for the insurance company. He's doing it for his own benefit. Yeah. What a rotter. And he, he, did, a and he didn't have an alibi. But it, he, his motive seemed, uh, I don't know, I kind of bought it initially. But then when you start thinking about it in terms of he's so ruthless to have, to, to have killed these people right under the nose of the police. If he was that ruthless, surely he wouldn't have bothered getting the police involved because he claimed his motive is kind of going to the police is to kind of get them to do a lot of the legwork mm. for him. But it just seems an unnecessary risk if he's as yeah, determined point, and reckless. I, I think he was probably hoping to avoid having to kill everyone. But I think as circumstances play out, he finds that he needs to. And that's, no, that's maybe, kind of what yeah. I got from it. I, I think he was just hoping that they'd just go and uncover everything and, and then hand it to him and he'd just go off and... And grab the loot. And things just got a bit out of control. I, I, I suspect so, yeah. That's mm. that's what I took away from it. But And yeah. perhaps some of his attempts to wangle these photo parts out by promising people money didn't pay off necessarily <laughs> or or if they you know, didn't work quite the way he wanted them to. So he's he's perhaps a bit his own worst enemy, a bit too smarmy and mm. a bit too So did strange. did he get a piece of the uh, the photo from the old woman then? And the story yeah. about the treasure. Yeah. So that's a bit of a red herring with them telling the police that he didn't. Because she says she didn't and she doesn't know what on earth he's on about. And yet, I can't remember that being resolved, that. Well, you know, there's there's certain times in these sorts of stories where the the chapter you're reading or the bit is just almost like it's just filling a gap that needed to be filled in the story. Mm. And so they have to have, an, you know, this is to do with a, a widow who was... She's not a widow, is she? She's the sister of the widow mm. of one of the bank robbers who's ended up inheriting one of these bits of paper, uh, these bits of the photograph. And it's an Irving Crutch said he'd give her a thousand dollars for it if she and she gives it to him, I think. Yeah, she, yeah, there's no mm. doubt about But he hasn't that, given her the money. But yeah, she, she claims not to have told him that it leads to where yeah. treasure mm. is. Well, she, yet- she, her version of events is. She just... brings his into dispute yes. and hers is the real story which is where they start getting well Crutch is the liar Basically, that's what where the bells mm. start to ring properly yeah so that again so her version is true what so she didn't tell him about the treasure yeah she didn't say treasure she had the bit of photograph but ah, she didn't right. call it treasure or say what it was mm. about ah, right, he made okay. that up for the police's benefit yeah. which is why when they confront him at so, the end he so just how starts... did he know that he just guessed he had the other information from somewhere else. Did he? Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, I'm getting drilling into <laughs> intricate pot details there. But it, 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 it occurred to me, yeah. 
Yeah. Right. I'm when sure. you try and, and try and think back over these things, it's quite easy to get yourself tied in knots, isn't it? I know. It? Sometimes I try and write down a, a, a breakdown mm. of the plot, and I always have to stop because it you, you start having to do a massive flow chart, which is why the writing's good and why mm. our description of it afterwards is not, not so good. <laughs> Needless to say, you know, there's a bunch of people, some some are more significant in the story than others. Yes. And before we get towards sort of how it wraps up, I want to mention a couple of the references, because a good old McBain thing is a reference oh, to things in the real loves world. loves a bit of that, doesn't Anyone he? Anyone spot any in this um, one? The story uh, of O. Did you find anything out about the story of O? Uh, 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 just very briefly. Tell it's... us about the story of O, Morgan, in, in clear <laughs> and precise detail. Sounds sounds very rude. It does sound very <laughs> rude. So when they're looking in the in the uh, in the gallery for a, the piece of the photograph, they come across a hardback copy of the story of O. So I don't know if this was in the news in 1970, but certainly it had been published in the mid 50s, which was an uh, erotic novel, but seems pretty damn racy for an erotic novel. Oof. It's very white, saucy, I believe, yeah. Well, I've just read the Wikipedia thing because I'm frightened if I read any more that me, me glasses will smash. <laughs> it's a tale of female submission involving a beautiful Parisian fashion photographer named O, who is taught to be constantly available for, well, everything, offering herself to any male who belongs to the same secret society as her lover, a guy called Sir Stephen. Sir Stephen. It, and it is. it seems... From the very brief Wikipedia description of it, it seems like it's probably quite uh, a lot of stuff to do with the body. In mm. there. Not just like sexy bodies doing sex things, but mm. you know, very specific details about piercings and yes. entries. <laughs> it's, it seems like it might put Fifty Shades of Grey to shame. Yes. And I believe it was published with an unknown author, basically, who turned out to be a a, a lady writer. Uh. Yeah, so anyway, in this gallery, they've got the story of O, which is a real book. Mucky. A mucky book. Absolutely. You know. There's a couple of other real, real world references that aren't yeah. quite so mucky. I obviously just got up to the filthy one and stopped. Yeah, mm. was, I'll uh... research this. <laughs> There's a reference to a character called Gaylord Ravenel. Oh, there is, isn't there? I d- didn't look that up. So I thought you would have known what, what he was from, the character. Well, not, yeah, well, he's a character, Gaylord Ravenel. Uh, I can't think at he's all. He's the lead character from Showboat. Oh, you see, I've never seen uh, Showboat. Uh, what a sh- terrible shame. Yeah, he's a gambler. He was, he's, he's referenced in, in terms of all the payphones in New York. Oh, sorry. Isola being like a lottery when you pick mm-hmm. one up whether, as to whether your coin's just going to get swallowed yeah. or whether you're actually going to get anything. <laughs> There's two or three moments in the book where he gets angry about payphones. One of which involves a refer- his first reference in the 87th Precinct series to 911. Ah, indeed, he don't, yes. I don't think he actually names he do, 911. Doesn't, but he does mention a, a, a three-digit three, dial three digit number or something, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, so that's the first reference. Wow. Why wouldn't he have said the number? Well, perhaps he was thinking maybe he'd make up his own number for... Uh, oh, uh, yeah. It was pretty new at that time, oh, right. anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. Got, my favorite my favorite reference in the book is to a guy called Martin Levin. So at one point Geraldine Ferguson says I like to read the papers. I read the comics and I'd read Martin Levin. Now, it doesn't take much thinking to figure out Martin Levin's going to be a book reviewer. Mm. <laughs> and I found a, an article in the New York Times 
which for some reason is reproduced terribly on my little pad here from 1972 and it's a letter from Evan Hunter to oh, Martin Levin <laughs> basically saying it goes in 1964 Martin Levin reviewed my novel Budwing in 1965 Martin Levin reviewed my novel The Sentinel in 1966 Martin Levin reviewed my novel The Paper Dragon in 1967 Martin Levin reviewed my novel A Horse's Head in 1968 Martin Levin did not review my novel last summer <laughs> but then neither did the book review and then he goes through and he's talking about his new book at the time called Every Little Crook and Nanny, which features a character who keeps talking about Martin Levin. And he's basically saying, and he ends it up saying, listen, none of us wants to break with time on a tradition. I'm writing, in fact, only to tell you that I'm now working on yet another novel. And I want to make certain that Mr. Levin won't be too busy to review it when it's published sometime next year. <laughs> I almost feel we're married, you see, and I wouldn't want him to miss our sixth anniversary. So it's just, this is just Evan Hunter's pissed off that Brilliant. the New York Times book reviewer has skipped over one of his books. <laughs> and so he's written him into loads that's, of, that's loads of books. I, I love it when, when his sort of crankiness surfaces in these. It's, it's always great. Like, like with the Maya Maya novel thing yeah. as well. And I think that's great. And Mr. Levin replies... Mr. Hunter admits that I did not review a book by him in 1968, but he neglects to mention that I did not review his work in 1969, 1970 or 1971. He also chooses to forget, for understandable reasons, that during this period his novel Sons has been appraised in the book review by Richard Brickner. So I suspect that means it didn't get a good review. <laughs> and <laughs> He says, The fact that my reviews are quoted in your correspondence new novel is hardly... Well, he's replying to the editor of The Times in Evan Hunter's new novel, is hardly a reason for disqualifying myself from reviewing them. I am abundantly cited in Webster's Third, yet have no difficulty approaching it with an open mind. <laughs> it's a very snippy exchange between Ev Evan Hunter and this book reviewer Brilliant. in the pages of, of the New York Times. So that was my favourite one in there. That's great. Anyone spot the reference to the birds? Yes. I've forgotten what it was now, um, but I did at the time. When... Cotton Hawes and Maya Maya go to the boutique where Irving Crutch's girlfriend works and it's, and basically refers to the women in there as, as being like birds. birds. Not quite in the <laughs> no. British sense, I don't think. No. More like sort of twittering around like birds. Yeah. But, and Maya Maya says, I didn't even watch the film. Mm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. He's grumpy, grumpy Ed McBain writing this book. <laughs> So there you go, some very interesting references in there. He also does a couple of his other classic things, like he has a sequence with a lawyer that just really annoys all the cops. Mm. Needless objections to things. And, you know, those sorts of things. There's a few bits of the, the old 87th Precinct bingo, bingo card, card yeah. in here. Um, the uh, homicide cops. They actually do a little bit of police work in this, don't they? Yeah, they do. They and even do better, some things. one of them's grown a moustache. Oh, I love that. Which he's very self-conscious about. So is it Munro's grown a moustache in this one? So Monaghan and Munro turn well, up. Yeah, 1970s. Yeah, so one of them's grown a moustache and clearly feels sort of really embarrassed. Probably assumed that the other guy was going to grow one as well. And so every time he thinks anyone's looking at it, he takes out his tissue and blows his nose. <laughs> it's just, It's just a... An interesting development in the story of Monaghan and Monroe, the homicide detectives. Yeah. Uh, Monroe's d d worried because he thinks Monaghan hates it. Monaghan actually really does hate it <laughs> and just can't stop staring at it. Yeah. 
It's a strange bit of character information, but I, I do it's like it. Tremendous. You are right, though. They do Monaghan do a little bit of work. Hit, Monaghan hated Monroe's moustache. He considered it unaesthetic. It oh. embarrassed him. It offended his eye. <laughs> unaesthetic. Because it offended his eye, he constantly stared at it. And the more he stared at it, the more often Monroe took out his handkerchief and blew his nose, hiding the moustache. <laughs> Marvellous. So. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of, of that good stuff. We better before we do our summing up, we probably better talk about how the book ends. It certainly doesn't end this way in Colombo, as I suggested earlier at the top the sort of top of the podcast. They have to basically crack Crutch's alibi, don't they? Well, they kind of work out that he's the only person who could have possibly done all these things because he was the only person furnished with knowledge of where uh, they were kind of up to, were yeah. they? And yeah, so they work. They know it's him, but. They can't work how it, how it can be. Because Susie he, Endicott is, is sticking to her guns and saying, yes, I was with him at this time. he does seem to have, like, a kosher alibi, but... So they need to get Susie Endicott to tell the truth or confirm their suspicions. Yeah. And they don't know how they're going to do it, except that she's from Georgia originally. And the assumption is that if you're from Georgia, if you're a sweet little Georgia peach, as I think they refer to her that you are probably going to be fundamentally racist. Now, I've been to Georgia, and where I've been, it's been a very lovely place, and I've had a lovely time. There are things going on in Georgia to this day that people might consider, certainly legisl- legislatively... Mm. Is that... Oh, I can't say that properly. Legis- yeah, that, that sounds right, I think. I won't, I won't try saying it again. There are some things going on in places like Georgia yes. to this very day. It does have a reputation despite lots and lots of things to recommend it. Here, they're using the notion that she's probably racist to send round Arthur Brown to question her because she's not met him yet. Mm. And so this is where it gets a bit strange, this conclusion. Yeah. What do we think? Yeah, it is strange, really. Uh, McBain has it been his idea, doesn't he? Uh, Arthur Brown's idea. Well, it's, oh, yeah, it's Carella's yeah. it's idea. idea, which I think is it. Yeah, yeah. yeah and there's like, is it Halls who's appalled by it? Yeah. But then Arthur Brown thinks it's a great idea. Yeah, he oh, goes. I thought it was his idea. Yeah, Carella Halls is like, no, don't do it. Don't. That's not. It wasn't my idea, Artie. It's not my idea. And Arthur Brown's like, oh yeah. I suspect the idea is by this point in the book, Arthur Brown's had enough of people being casually racist mm. to him all the way through that he's like I'm just going to turn on the full overblown exaggerated idea of a, a dangerous uh, yeah. black man African American so he basically launches into this kind of minstrel grotesque doesn't he yeah. which is it's pretty hard to yeah, it's, get it's, through it's not the greatest thing but it scares her into confessing basically that at some point Irving Crutch had left her and that tallies with when the murders were committed, they're trying to pin on him. And the, the, But the funny thing is, and it is a good funny moment that comes out the back of that, is the moment she's, she's confirmed that, he just instantly goes back to... He goes, oh, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Bye-bye. Come on, then. So she's it, like, what? Yeah. So funnily enough, Columbo doesn't end up... <laughs> end like really? That. It in, do surprise me. In some ways, Columbo ends in a much more unfeasible way. <laughs> oh, gosh. Involving a parking meter. And I'll Ow. say no more about it. No. <laughs> but what we need to do is we need to wind up our machine, Kenneth, and we need to we need to score scoring. this. 
I will pass Steve over Kenneth output so he can he can yeah. refer to the yeah. previous previous scores. Well, it's not my turn to score first. I think yeah. I've scored first numerous times. Look at that. It's uh, up and down. Pinging up and down. But there's a general downward trajectory at the moment, despite those uh, anomalies there. We're in a bit of an up and down, aren't we, at the moment? We are. Is more inconsistent in this phase of the book writing, clearly. Mm. Well, in our Kenneth scores, in our opinion, in our, in in our yeah, opinion. absolutely, and as ratified by the Kenneth machinery, I, indeed. So anyway, as usual, I think we should always say, even when we do give a low score, that this, you know, that they're all they're all good, aren't they? Yeah. Well, they are indeed. They so are. good, man. Everything's relative. Relative. Well, with shall I... Do you want to go first? Shall I go you, first? you very rarely go first. I know. Well, that's the power of the host, you see. Yeah. The, 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 the... Turn the tables. Well, it's an interesting one. I have actually read it a few times, but I think it was because it was amongst the first block of books I got. Mm. And it was a lot of these 70s ones. So this, obviously the one of the, this is the first one from the 70s, uh, including later on things like Bread, which I've read a few times. Uh, but I definitely, I've probably got this at the same time as I got bread, so I think I've read those, sort of like, oh, I've got to read these a few times, which is why the pages are falling out of my copy now. Mm-hmm. I do like that it is someone else centre stage. I like the novelty of the quest. Reading it this time through, I certainly thought I would not recommend this as a first-time read for the <laughs> no. 87th Precinct. It's not that there's stuff to be ironed out, it's just sometimes certain things... <sighs> Don't sit as well within the in the story. I mentioned a little bit earlier. I think that the parts and the whole are two different things. There's certainly some very, very, very good parts to this. Mm. There's some very difficult parts to it, and partly difficult because they deal with difficult issues, and partly difficult because reading them is now difficult. Yes, but uh, oh, mm, noises. <laughs> I think I am going to go for an award of sixty-two, please, shields. 62, please, shields. Mm, am I? Yeah, I'm sticking with that. Okay. I'm going to go over to Morgan for a summary. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I remember really enjoying this when I read it previously. And I know we've discussed the sort of central kind of MacGuffin, and it's not super plausible, but I think it's very enjoyable hokum, mm. and I, it's it's a, a riveting read, it does keep you going. There are sections as we've discussed that are straight up problematic and it, to a modern reader, and we have to acknowledge that, but it's, it's still really good fun uh, if you can just accept that there are some bits of it that you know, are past their sell-by date. Um <laughs> I think I will go for a score of 65 police shields. 65? Okay. So, Steve-O? Yeah, I I think I agree with you both. Yeah, there's bits of it that much of their time dated very, very badly. But, yeah, the the dynamic of the book is good. Good to have a new character. Drives on with a very linear plot. Yeah, no no side plot. Rattles along and... Uh, you know, reading this a second time, I absolutely kind of flew through it, hence ignoring all the questions you <laughs> mentioned about various bits and bobs. Yeah, but overall, I think I would order um, maybe 66 police. Ooh. 66. Kenneth's whirring away, and he's produced a result of 64 police shields for Jigsaw. That's 64. Seems 
fair enough, I think. Yeah, yeah. I would say so. Yeah, 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 as you say, it's certainly not one you'd recommend for the first time. You you don't let the the fact that it is a product of its time think, um, you know, to totally write it off. And the devotees of the series will find much to enjoy. Um, but, if yeah, if you've just, just tuned in, <laughs> maybe have a look at the the, uh, the, the, the graph of, our, of Kenneth's previous scores and go for one of the ones with the highest score to, to, to start things off. Because I suppose overall, the, those chap, those bits, and there's not that many of them, but the, the, there are a few, do make it read quite dated uh, and not quite as dated as some books that are even older than it in the series, mm. really. Yeah. Mainly because they would have been incredibly topical at the time, and as soon as you bring topical things into a... Uh, and people's attitudes, and not only characters' attitudes, but the... Uh, the author's the, the, voice yeah, attitude the, the, yeah, as well. Yeah, the, the, the case in point is that the, the Arthur Brown language is a bit more the character's views, but when he's describing the art gallery guy, that's a bit more just the author's language. Mm-hmm. And so that, in a way, was a bit more problematic than, yeah. than, yes. than yeah, the I Arthur agree. Brown art, yeah, I, yeah, I thought. Because I, I, I thought, well, this isn't a character saying this. This is like... Yeah, the the narrator. The, yeah, the narration. Narrator. Yeah, but again, that's you know, you, you know, you, you're talking nearly fifty years ago. So yeah. Well, I'll just give you very quickly a couple of bits from the reviews from the time. So John Leonard reviewing it in Books of the Times in New York Times. See, people were reviewing <laughs> stuff he wrote, just not if it had the word Evan Hunter on it. <laughs> He does say, uh, if McBain telegraphs his punches somewhat, he makes up for it by deft handling of a potentially potentially dangerous foray into racial humour. Deft. Mm. Doesn't seem so deft now, but <laughs> no. at the time... And maybe. Maurice Richardson, our old pal from Crime Ration in The Observer, says it is compulsive all the way. Mm. So I mean, it, yeah. that, that's it is. Time may not have been so kind to it. But we leave 1970 behind and we march forward into 1971 on the next podcast where we will be looking at the bumper bonus police story of Hail, Hail, the gang's all here. So until then, I'm going to say goodbye and I suspect Steve-O is. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. Goodbye. Goodbye.